Today's interview with Rebecca Edelman was a joy. We talked about a lot of books. We talked about emotional equations, five languages of love, all on a journey to talk about a cool certification program that helps long-term care executives avoid hiring an attorney. And this program was created by an attorney. Thank you, Rebecca. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to Rebecca Edelman. She's an entrepreneur, influencer, thought leader, and founder of Edelman Law Firm and Claims Management established in 2001. The main reason I want to have Rebecca on the show is because she's creating a really, really cool national certification program that I got my eyes underneath the hood and saw some of the questionnaire and see some of the cool results that are coming out. So Rebecca, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Peter. As ever, thank you so much for all you do for our industry, for bringing so many cool topics to the surface. Anyway, thanks for having me. Rebecca, just so the audience knows, you and I have been talking probably for almost a year and we tried to meet at ACA. We both go to a bunch of conventions. Our paths have not crossed yet in person, but several times on Zoom. So I know a lot about you, Rebecca, and I'm sure a lot of long-term care executives do. Can you just give me in three or four minutes how you got into long-term care and keep it as personal as you feel comfortable? You know, one thing about long-term care that we all know is everyone has a very special journey on how they arrive in senior living and long-term care. So my journey started 35 years ago when I was a young lawyer. I had moved to my beautiful city of Memphis, Tennessee to begin my law practice and was hired by a really an excellent firm. And now keep in mind, you know, back then, that long ago, particularly down here in Memphis, I'd come from Michigan, which is where I'm from. There really weren't a lot of women practicing trial attorneys sort of my area practice. And so it was really sort of a unique place for me to be. So I arrived at a law firm and they had a specialty practice doing medical malpractice defense. So through a whole series of events that transpired, I became really an expert in doing medical malpractice. And this was like in the 90s. And we started to see long-term care cases come in, particularly out of the Florida area. I began working on them and then started to develop an expertise and a thought leadership doing senior living defense work, representing senior living care providers, really along the whole spectrum. However, it was primarily skilled facilities at that time that we were seeing. Like nobody knew what OGRA was. So I was sort of unpacking the OGRA bag and seeing these big verdicts coming out of different parts of the country. So that's how I got myself involved. And then once I became involved in sort of the industry of defending long-term care is when the journey really started, which was, you know, really understanding this population of our elders and our more frail and really underserved in the senior living world back in the 90s. And I have a very, very close relationship. My dad has since passed and my grandparents have since passed but a very close relationship with the elders in my family. As I became more involved in the senior living world, I started to be able to translate so much of my work to my family. And it has been just an incredible experience. And then from there, you know, for the past 30 plus years, my area of practice has been in representing senior living providers and 
lawsuits and risk management. And we're here today to talk about some other things interrelated, but that's how I show up and that's my journey. And, and it is personal, Peter. Like many of us, you know, it has been a great service. My choices in being in the senior living space have served so many people and I'm so grateful for that. We'll eventually get to how kind of the transition and your role as caretaker daughter of your parents into senior living helped become the impetus for your program guide path. And I'm sure we'll get to that. Before we get to that, I'm going to put you on the spot with a surprise question, and it might make you feel uncomfortable. In your long resume, what is the award or accomplishment that you're most proud of? I think I am most proud of the Ethel Mitty Award. I was the first recipient. Oh, it's going to make me tear up, actually, of the Ethel Mitty Award. And for those of you who knew Ethel, who was intimately involved with the American Association of Assisted Living Nurses, for which I serve as their legal advisor, started by a very close friend of mine decades ago. She was the quintessential care provider nurse and was a great advocate and champion in the assisted living world. In her memory and in commemoration of her, had an award and I was the first recipient of that service award. So that I think would be what I am most grateful for. Thanks for sharing that. And now I want to get into why I'm interested in talking about your program. And the audience might think that this is going to come off as a platform, as a sales spot. I have no vested interest in promoting your program and you did never reached out on this. So what I want to talk about is I think the program that the way that I heard you explain GuidePath is so fascinating. I want to start off with that. And then I'll let you correct me, Rebecca, about the things that I get wrong. Is you worked three decades of your life helping people when at the risk level, they're at the 8, 9, 10. They need a defense and attorney. They have lawsuits coming at them. They're probably negligent. And at least one out of 10 things that they're being sued for depends on what part of the lawsuit you're looking at. And you took all of that knowledge and you turned it into a program for the people who aren't at that stage so that they can manage risk ahead of time. And my favorite word that you used when I was going through my notes is it's a basically about helping residents manage their expectations of what's going to happen in the transition before they get into long-term care. Now, what did I get wrong in turning your beautiful, sophisticated program into layman's terms from a boy from Kansas? Nothing was wrong. It was all right. And sort of rewinding it a little bit. And for those of who are listening to us, they'll hear me say this because it's very important. Our ecosystem in senior living, there's a lot going on in our ecosystem. It's not just, you know, our regulations or it's not just our providers. It's not just the insurance companies or private equity, or it really all begins and ends with the person or persons who are making the decision to transition care for someone they love or for themselves. This is where it all begins, wherever we are in the ecosystem. And I'm sort of looking at this landscape that I'm always referring to. So I can, when I'm considering like what sustainable transformation can really be in our industry, particularly now when we are embarking on a really sort of a brave new world, we have an opportunity to redefine. We have an opportunity to reinvest. We have an opportunity to re-engage, right? After COVID and with a lot of regulatory setbacks and changes and things of that nature, this whole landscape really is about people. 
So what you got right in so many different ways is just that this program we've developed, well, I've developed really started from, as you noted, risk, you know, when I show up as a defense lawyer, right, a trial lawyer, defense lawyer, someone's knocking at my door who is already in trouble. I'm a senior living provider. I'm assisted living. I'm a skilled, I'm a rehab, whatever it is. I am being sued. And typically that comes to me through the insurance carrier, right? Because, you know, I do professional liability defense work. So there's another few other players in that landscape. It's not just me and the provider. So there are a lot of interests and a lot of stakeholders involved. And so what I found is, and particularly when I was younger, and keep in mind, like, that's my, that's where I began my professional journey. So I really didn't have any kind of perspective of risk management. We weren't talking about those things, by the way, 30 years ago. We were in the reactive mode. Somebody gets sued and we're in reaction mode, right? What do we do to counterpunch? And so really what I learned, and again, that has just been of great service to me, to my family, and so many others that I've been able to share with is I've deposed thousands of family members, people who are making difficult decisions to transition their loved one into an assisted living or into skilled and also have deposed those particular residents and their whole family system. It's not just one person. It's a whole system that makes the decision to transition. And it's been leading up. It's not like, you know, one day you're in the hospital and you decide you're going to go into long-term care. These are pivotal points in people's lives, right? When they are making what considerably could be the most difficult decision, a time where they know that this may be the last place, the last home that their loved one is. So what I learned and what is sort of the genesis of GuidePath is that after deposing thousands of family members and speaking also to our own providers, to CNAs like yourself, to administrators, to medical directors, to hospitalists, is there is very little knowledge about what transitions of care really mean. Like when you are coming into a long-term care facility, what does it really mean? We know what we read on paper. We know what admission documents look like. We're told typically by either our treating physician or the discharge planners at the hospital and our physicians, sort of what we have to do. You know, you can't go home because you need skilled care or you need more support or you need rehabilitation. And then what happens is There's a person on the other side of these decisions who has needs, who has feelings, who have expectations about or concerns or confusion or lack of knowledge. And the system that we've developed, again, that I was able to sort of unearth decades ago, is that there was really no communication tools. There was no education around connecting with the feelings and the needs and the expectations and the understandings of these family members. So what depositions would sound like, for example, would be, tell me how your family made the decision to transition your life. Well, she was in the hospital, my mother. She has COPD. She had all these other underlying comorbid conditions. And we had to, she couldn't, we couldn't take care of her at home anymore. So if you really listen to it, though, as I would explore it more in a deposition, what I was able to uncover were feelings of guilt were feelings of anger, because now I'm engaging with this family member after there's been a negative outcome. Someone's fallen, someone's died, someone's broken something, someone has a head injury, 
someone's lost a lot of weight, whatever kinds of conditions, things that happen when we are in a senior living setting, right? So from there, over time, in the first several years, I started to realize like, wow, if most of these people had had some education or someone would have talked to them about what to expect, how there was just a sort of a gap, this large gap between the family, the resident, and then our senior living providers. And again, it touches the whole landscape. So from there to stretch this out just a little more, from there, I started to collect information, data, questions, and got tried to distill this down into an expectations management program. That's sort of where it began 25 years ago. So I started to present in that space, in our senior living space, about managing resident and family expectations. And when you go back, it's kind of funny. I go back and I look at my old PowerPoints. I don't even think it was called PowerPoint back then. Whatever I was using, I go back and I look and the same kinds of issues that were present 25 years ago still are present now, right? So I sort of took all this data. I took these programs that I was sharing with our senior living providers and insurance carriers in a sort of a more risk management space around expectations management. Half is is a real scaled version of that. So I can reach out in a more broad sense to families, to residents, and to our facilities with a really unique type of education. And then the families with a tool, we call it the insights survey, but a tool that we can use to engage with them so we can understand what their feelings and needs are. That's the extended version of your description. So to ground this and turn it into something that's tangible, can you give me a specific example? I know that you're in the pilot process right now, so you have surveys coming in. Can you give me a specific example of a family member fills out a survey and you see that it's going to cause misalignment of information and misalignment of expectations? How do you coach a user or someone who's certified to take that knowledge and turn it into something that will change their relationship and also manage their risk? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone. Whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not, then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical, financial, and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care. And I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. That's a great question. So focusing on the family and resident engagement side, we have this insight survey, which is a tool, 25 questions 
very simple, about five or six minutes that our pilot partners are delivering out to the residents and families in five really important areas, the five key areas that I've been able to identify that create the most risk. So communication, the family system, goals of care, the aging process, and emotional and spiritual well-being. So for example, in any one of those categories, once the survey is filled out, the survey then is graded. And I think I sent you a version that you can see you know, high, low, medium risk. So let's say a family member or a survey comes back and there's a high risk present for the family system. Each of those questions is rated and emerges a high risk category. What we know would be that based on the questions is that there could be some remote family members who are involved, who don't see them very often, or family members who are going to be visiting very often, et cetera. So what they do in answer Direct answer to the question is we have a playbook, number one, that has tools, resources, and action plans in order to address the high-risk areas. So that's one way. The second way is we train our, through the certification program, on the other side, there's nine weeks of education, and the nine weeks of education also tie into these, you know, the insight survey categories. We're training in areas of trauma-informed care and compassionate communication. So we are learning also on the facility side, some very unique skill sets for culture change and for family and resident engagement. And then the other component of the insight survey is the families then have available to them very short videos, five to seven minute videos on these five important areas, already setting their expectations, right? or at least giving them some information to say, let us talk to you about how communication works in a facility, okay? In a nursing home or an assisted living. Let us share with you about how the transition of care could impact your family and communication, how we communicate with you, encouraging residents and family to partner in communication, et cetera. So these small video resources for the families and they can share them with folks. So that already gets us engendering trust and an understanding and a basis that we can all come together to understand the importance of these five different areas and how a resident and a family system will be impacted. So those are the different resources that are available through the program. I want to go back to the simplest version of this program when it was first born. So maybe that's three years ago, maybe that's 15 years ago. Tell me what was the biggest challenge from that point today to get into a robust system? Was it the questionnaire? Was it identifying the indicators? Tell me what were your growing pains? I think the growing pains were being able to translate the information into a tool, right? Because really the program in its original form and purest form was me doing what we're doing, sharing with a group of 50 people, 20 people, a facility, a larger portfolio, ACA, an organization, you know, my take on what I've seen over the years, sharing my experiences and then giving some recommendations. It was taking those recommendations and being able to actually designed the survey, I think if I had to figure out what the complexity was, is to take the information and actually translate it into a tool. 
a tool that was simple, a tool that in 25 short little questions could give a facility and a family an emotional sense around what was happening. And then to find somebody who understood how to do the analytics behind it. How do you grade it? How do you have answers like a statistician or a somebody who knows how to do samplings to take my ideas and turn them into a tool and then program it? You know, we've got a whole portal and our facility pilot partners go in and they have create surveys and we get data back and we can see the number of high risk ratings. And then we're collecting a really important body of work here. But I think just creating a tool and instead of me just telling folks, here's what I think you should do is here's something that's going to help you do what I think is going to be, you know, not just risk mitigation and risk management and quality and process improvement and make for better life and make for better dying, but also just gives us the best opportunity to know to engage and be with people and understand because it's a very complicated decision that's fraught with emotion. My next question for you is how hard was it for you to translate the relationship or explain the connection between expectations and risk when you were finding your pilot partners? And I'm going to give you 15 or 20 seconds to think on it. And The reason that I'm interested in this is because a very important book in my framework for approaching life is called Emotional Equations from a man named Chip Conley. And he has an equation in there that I think is going to resonate so much for you. And I believe that I might be getting it wrong. So sorry, Chip, if I get it wrong, but it's basically happiness equals expectations divided by reality. So whenever I find myself unhappy, I always think, what should I have adjusted in my expectations so next time I'm happy instead of being disappointed? Now I'll let you answer that question. Wow, I'm going to read that book, number one. And number two, that equation, gosh, you can use that equation in all sorts of different contexts, right? So expectations and risk. I think that's the equation we're trying to figure out or what I've been tasked to and what I'm passionate about. How do you explain it to someone who doesn't understand it? Here's how I do it, I guess, is risk is multiple definitions of risk, but risk really is an event that happens that is unexpected, okay? Some kind of loss happens as a result of an event, whatever it is, you know, You fall when you're walking outside, right? It's risky walking outside because you could fall and you could hurt yourself. So that's what risk is, okay? In our world, it's a loss that happens. The question is, if you don't know what the risks are, okay? If you don't know that getting on a plane, you have a risk or you eat something here and you put upset your stomach, if you don't know what the risks are, whatever kinds of life experiences you have are what establish your expectations. So you walk outside and you fall and you get really upset about it because, you know, you didn't have an expectation you would fall when you walked outside. I'm using something very simple. But risk at its heart is some kind of a loss. And if we don't know a loss that we don't anticipate. So the expectations that something is going to happen or that we don't know is going to happen can be set in any different level. 
So to try and explain to someone that being able to understand the underlying needs, because expectations are just a matter of, you know, in the equation you shared, there's a lot of emotion in there, right? I mean, reality, emotion, expectations, emotion, dividing those, happiness is its own sets of emotions, depending on how you define happiness. But it's the same thing with expectations. At the heart of expectations are just feelings and needs. So the real issue is, how do you plan for certain losses that might happen? How do you see risks? How do you, number one, identify risks? And number two, how do you adjust your expectations around them? And you can only do that by conversation. And you can only do that within our framework here by educating, right? And the only way we can do that if we continue to unwind is to know what people feel and know what people think and know what their life experiences are. What do you know about your mother's physical condition? Well, not much. Well, would you like to learn more? No. Well, that could be risky because if someone doesn't want to know about their loved one's condition, right, that in and of itself sets them up for expectations. And so I think that's the best way to do it is that to explain to somebody how expectations intersects or the equation there is expectations. I'm not sure I have an actual equation. I'm not a math girl. You know, I'm a lawyer. I think you should just steal it from Chip Conley, give him credit and you're going to love the book. I'm just going to love that. But I think that's right. And that's the heart of it. Expectations just are life experiences. We've been in certain situations over and over again. We have an expectation about healthcare. We have an expectation about education. We have an expectation of when we go to a restaurant. That's how we live our lives. The important thing, though, here is that we're dealing with like a certain population and the relationship between our elders. And I'm just focusing on elders, obviously, senior living and the world we spin around in addresses all sorts of folks in that ecosystem. However, this is an emotional time. Transitioning to care in a senior living community brings with it like all sorts of emotions and expectations. And if you've had a bad experience in healthcare, for example, and your loved one's coming to our facility, our community, my goodness, I'd like to know about your bad experience so I can help. As we start to wrap up, First of all, I want to mention when you were talking about expectations, it something that resonated with me and kind of like, you kind of want to know what the person's expecting from you. And it reminds me, I did a workshop where I've been doing workshops at long-term care conventions around the book, Five Languages of Love. Have you ever read that book? Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about the fact that the relationship between learning someone's love language and expectations, there's something there, almost like, When I go into a relationship, for example, with my wife, she expects that I love her the way that she want to be loved. But before I read the book, I didn't know that I had to love her in a different way. Two, you just taught me there's an expectation ahead of time. So I better get my act in line and figure out the way that she wants to love. I'm just putting those two and two together as on the run as we're going through this interview. My next question for you, Rebecca, is what has been the most enjoyable part for you? Like if I asked you in one sentence, the process of building out guide path, what has been the most enjoyable part? What is it? Oh my goodness. Without question, the most enjoyable part, the most fulfilling part of this is being able to meet with families, being able to meet with residents, 
who are at all sorts of different stages in living and dying, right? And being able to hear their stories. That's it. This is really what it's all about. What was working for them? What we can do better? What did they expect? What would they need from us? And like really just bringing this deep humanity and this culture change into this particular program. And then that has just been shining out all over to our pilot partners. And I thank Mm. them for joining us to my partners at California State University are putting together the education platform, brilliant education platform with subject matter experts on very, very compelling topics. So all of that at the heart of it is just the storytelling of people who are in varying transitions of their lives and who are entrusting their loved ones and themselves with us caring for them. That's been the most fulfilling part. Thanks. Rebecca, as we sign off, Tell the listeners where they can go find more about GuidePath and just why they should consider it. So I'm probably your best resource. Peter, I don't know if you post something, but my law firm's in Memphis, Edelman Law Firm, edelmanfirm.com, Rebecca at edelmanfirm.com. But the GuidePath website to learn more about it is www.guidepathllc.com. That will give you a nice overview of the education and the survey process. And then there are links in there on how to get a hold of us through GuidePath. Why should folks in our industry be interested? I think because the time is right, number one. For us, there is an imperative, an imperative to really shift the paradigm to creating and co-creating in senior living. And this program just offers opportunities for us to be at that early stage of risk, not to mention, by the way, we hadn't talked about this, but you know, financial considerations, reduction of loss, reduction of expenses, your staff having to deal with family complaints, just creating a better environment also for your staff, retention, recruitment, having a program there that's designed to empower folks to be able to engage. So from a business perspective, mitigating risk, loss reduction, not having to pay your lawyer a bunch of money, stuff like that. But from the standpoint of people really sort of going to the heart of what we do, which is caring. So I was just with one of our pilot partners, in fact, at their annual conference. And it was one of the loveliest things I'd heard. And one of the DONs who's involved in the program, and she's so inspired by it. She has a tool in order to talk to people in ways where she can elicit pretty swiftly, you know, their emotional life around their loved one to come into their facility. But she said, this is going to give us an opportunity to love bigger. One of my best friends and the godfather of my son, I always say to him, if attorneys really cared about making the world a better place, they'd give away all of their templates for contracts instead of waiting until we sue each other. And then telling us you should have used this contract. I feel like you're doing that. You're giving away the contracts to avoid risks. So they don't need to hire you afterwards when they're about to be sued. So thank you for contributing long-term care and a great project. And I'm glad to have you on the program. And hopefully our paths will cross in the, in the future. Thank you for joining the program, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Peter. Appreciate it. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. 
This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.